Did you ever wonder what's inside a terrestrial planet? Well, how about our moon? Did you know that the moon quakes? And we can find out all kinds of things about its interior. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. This season is all about the moon. With me today is Dr. Walter Kiefer, a planetary geophysicist. Walter is a staff scientist at the Lunar and Planetary Institute, Houston, Texas. He studies the geophysical evolution of the Moon, Mars, Venus, and even Io. Walter has been a member of the science team for NASA's GRAIL mission, and that's the Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory. And that explored the structure of the moon. Welcome, Walter. Hi. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Today, I want to talk about the subsurface of the moon. Most of our spacecraft always just look at the surface or we land, pick up a few rocks, but, uh, you know, we don't go very deep. So what are the ways that we really have that we use to look inside the moon? So one of the things that we've done, and this goes back to Apollo, actually, is that the Apollo astronauts left a set of seismic stations on the moon at most of the landing sites, and they were used to study the inside of the moon from 1969 until 1977 when the, the stations were shut off. And that provides a great view of the internal structure of the moon, but it's located to specific places on the moon where, where the, the landing sites were. When they deploy these seismic stations, what do they really look like? Each of the Apollo missions put down between five and eight different experiments. The seismometers were on almost all of them. It's a box. It doesn't actually look like much on the surface in the photographs because you'd want to protect it from changes in temperature during the lunar day and the lunar night. So it's got a, a thick insulating silver blanket over it basically. And what we've done since then is the GRAIL mission, uh, which studied the gravity of the moon. Walter, when did GRAIL launch and how long was it in orbit? GRAIL launched in September of 2011. It took actually about three months to get to the moon. Now, you can get to the moon much quicker, but they chose a very long path so they could get there with very precise timing because they had to have two spacecraft there going into orbit separately. So they went into orbit on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day of 2012. It took about two and a half months to get the spacecraft lined up exactly the way they needed to be in exactly the same orbit. And then they, they mapped for three months and then they had to take a pause because of the geometry between the Earth and the Moon. And then later that year, the geometry came back appropriately again. And they did another three months of mapping between uh, September and December of 2012. When we look at a planet or, or a moon, you know, the, our first thought is that the gravity is uniform in all directions. Is that really true? No, it's actually not true. I mean, even on the Earth, as you walk from place to place, the gravity is a little bit different. Uh, and it's a small difference. It's a small fraction of a percent. So you wouldn't necessarily notice it. But with good instruments, you can measure it and learn about the variations of, of the density inside of the Earth. And it's an important and powerful tool. And on the moon, it turns out that uh, the variations in gravity are actually substantially larger than they are on the Earth. It, it seems to be a rule from the places we've studied that the smaller the planet, the bigger the variations are. Yeah, that's really neat. So then as a satellite orbits the moon, those little gravity differences based on that additional mass or reduction of mass at certain locations tug and pull on the, on the spacecraft. And so we can measure that difference. 
Yes, so so we're we're basically measuring the differences in the speed of the spacecraft. Grail um, had two spacecraft, and we were looking at measuring the speed to a fraction of a micron per second. Now, a micron is one one millionth of a meter. So imagine in the course of the year, imagine the two spacecraft separating by about three meters or about ten feet. That's the rate, that's the speed that we could measure the differences with GRAIL. And that's why we were so successful at mapping the moon is that they could measure very, very small uh, velocity differences. So as GRAIL orbited the moon, these two spacecraft were in the same orbit, but one would feel a tug or a pull based on the gravity in and around it as it was orbiting and then move away or come closer to the other spacecraft. Exactly. So so one spacecraft would get there just a little bit before the other and uh, 30 or 45 seconds. And so you would see the change in velocity as one would get pulled and then the other would get pulled. And so sometimes they'd pull apart, sometimes they'd, they'd come together. And, and we measured those very precisely using the same technique that, that uh, cops use to determine if you're speeding. It's just that we could do it like a billion times better than the police do when they're trying to find out if you're speeding on the freeway. Yeah, so what's really neat then is if we then take the orbit and change it over time. I know we had an opportunity towards the end of GRAIL's mission to reduce the altitude. And so then those changes in distance between the two spacecraft was even more pronounced. Exactly. So at the end, we were down to um, about 10 kilometers on average above the surface. But that meant that we were flying in some cases only two kilometers above the surface of the highest mountains we were flying over. So we were really down in the weeds almost. I really wish we could have had a camera to um, to to take like a video picture of, of, of that. The view would have been uh, amazing. They eventually crashed and that ended the mission. So uh, So they're laying on the surface of the moon somewhere. Right, and that was done on purpose. We were out of fuel. They actually deliberately picked a place and uh, and it actually had a science value because they burned all of the fuel and uh, they needed to know the mass of the spacecraft as they were making the measurements. So by burning all of the fuel at the end, you could tell how much was left over and it actually improved the analysis as well. You know, we're pretty sure that the moon was once completely molten as it was forming. Once it cooled enough to be solid, then... Uh, what's the overall history of the heat? What happens to that heat uh, being dissipated in the moon? We do think that the moon originated in what we call a magma ocean. That that came up initially actually with the rocks from Apollo 11. That that theory came about within six months of the, the first lunar samples coming back. We think that the moon, it, it would have solidified from this magma state in probably less than a million years. Uh, after that, heat still keeps coming out. The, the interior of the moon would have been what we call convecting. Convection is, uh, is a process in which we move heat because material is physically moving. And so um, there are places inside the moon or inside of the earth that are hotter than other places. And just as we say that hot air rises, hot rock rises as well. Um, the rock is, if, it has, if it's hotter, it's thermally expanded. It's a little less dense than the surroundings. So it wants to rise. Other places that are colder um, are more, con more contracted. It's denser. Those places want to sink. And so that motion of some places wanting to come up, other places wanting to go down, creates a flow inside the mantle. Even though it's solid, it's moving um, as a very, very viscous fluid um, at a rate of potentially a few centimeters per year. 
That's why plates get moved around, why the Atlantic Ocean splits apart and uh, North America and Europe separate, for example, how we put a, push up mountain belts um, on the Earth is because it's solid, but it is moving very slowly at a rate of a few centimeters per year. The moon would have done exactly the same thing, um, at least early on. It would have been convecting. Eventually, the moon would have cooled enough that, that now um, it really isn't moving very much inside. Mostly the heat is simply coming out by conduction, which is a very slow process. So, so it's still cooling. You know, it creates scarps and actually even earthquakes, moonquakes um, on the moon even today. By scarp, what I mean is it's a ridge, it's a structure where it, it might look, kind of look like a hill. Um, they actually drove over one of them on Apollo 17 on purpose. It's a small hill that's created where one part got pushed up and one part got pulled down uh, by the motions on the fault. Actually, there, there are plenty of places on the moon where we can see scarps that must have been the signature of faults at some point. Now, we've not actually seen them move, but, uh, but, but we know that they must have formed in moonquakes in the past. So if we were standing on the surface of the moon during these moonquakes, both the shallow and also the deep ones, would we be shaken? So, so the deep moonquakes are very, very deep and they're very, very small. You would not feel them at all. You need a very sensitive instrument to detect them at all. Now, the shallow moonquakes, of which Apollo measured, I believe, 28 in six or seven years, some of them actually get to be very large and they appear to be associated with thrust scarps on the surface of the moon. So they're very close to the surface. Some of them are active today. I would not want to have a lunar habitat near one of those because I really would hate to have a leak in, in, my, uh, in my space station uh, that, that lost its air. So yeah, you, you would feel some of the shallow quakes if you were in the right place, but the good news is there aren't very many of them. I, my analogy is we bake a cake, take it out of the oven, and it's actually still cooking because it has to cool off. And so uh, our big bodies, our planets and moons that we have are, are still in that state. They're still cooling off. You know, we've uh, newly reanalyzed the Apollo seismic data, um, as you mentioned uh, earlier, and that indicates that the moon has a solid inner core and then a fluid outer core over on top of that. How big is this core, both a solid inner core and then that fluid outer core? So, so we think that the, uh, the core overall is uh, something like 350 or 400 kilometers in radius. That's to say that it's um, about 20% of the radius of the moon. Um, and the inner core, the solid part of that might be 200 or 250 kilometers, which would leave the, the, the fluid outer part maybe 100 or 150 kilometers. That means that the mass of the core is 1 to 2% of the mass of the planet. And that, that, you know, so that sounds like a big core, but on the Earth, um, the core extends out more than halfway to the surface, and it's more than 30% of the mass of the Earth. So the moon is actually very deficient in iron compared to the Earth. Then on top of that is the mantle and then the crust. So how big are those regions? The easier answer is probably the crust. The crust is the outermost layer of the moon. It's formed in the solidification of this magma ocean phase. It's mostly a rock called anorthosite, very rich in the mineral plagioclase, which is a light, uh, light gray mineral. So that's what we see when we look at the moon at night, the look at the full moon. The lighter parts are this, uh, this anorthositic crust. The combination of grail and the seismic data from Apollo tell us that on average that crust is between 34 and 43 kilometers thick. In some places it's it's much thinner, especially on the near side, and on the far side it gets much thicker. Some places as much as 80 kilometers thick on the far side of the moon. 
Wow. Well, let's uh, uh, switch gears a little bit and go back to some of the Apollo observations. You know, the the seismic observations indicated that there were not only shallow but deep moon quakes. Where are they coming from? So, so the deep moon quakes are the most common kind of moon quake on the moon, and they were they were much of a surprise, I think. Um, there are, it turns out, about 300 places deep in the moon, uh, we're talking 700 to 900 kilometers below the surface, that become seismically active about once a month. And they repeat, um, in many cases, every month. It appears that they're driven by the Earth's tides. So, so just as the moon creates tides on the Earth and it makes the ocean go up and down, uh, it also makes our rocks go up and down on the Earth. And the, the Earth does exactly that same thing to the moon. So the, the moon goes up and down by a little bit. It's a small amount of stress. But for reasons we don't fully understand, these parts of the deep moon are weak enough that those stresses make moonquakes in those places um, sometimes once a month. Um, and we see the same signature month after month in the seismograms, so we know that they're coming from exactly the same place. And, and that actually turns out to be useful because even though we don't know where they're coming from, the fact that they're a signal coming from the same place, we can add up that signal um, maybe 30, 40, 50 times um, in the Apollo data, and we can use it to um, to look and see how the, the uh, seismic waves from those events propagated through the moon, bounced off the core of the moon, um, and therefore we can look and use that data. That's actually the data that was used to estimate uh, the size of the core, um, is, is the 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 seismic waves from these deep moon quakes um, helped us to understand the structure of the moon's core. One of the things that I had heard that uh, was done, I think, starting with Apollo 12, was they actually staged an impact. Uh, after they left the, the the lunar limb, they let the limb go down and hit the hit the surface, and then that caused quakes that they could then know the time and location. What did they learn from that? Well, so, so it was a good way to calibrate the response of the moon to a known event. And, and actually, they did it not just with the lunar module ascent stages, but they actually, starting on Apollo 13, um, they deliberately crashed the third stage of the Saturn rocket into the moon, I think probably as many as five times. When they did that on Apollo 13, remember, this was the very earliest stages of, of lunar seismology, and the moon... They kept seeing it for almost an hour. They described the moon as ringing like a bell. The moon is colder than the Earth, um, so the seismic waves do not attenuate as well as they do on the Earth. And so they just kept going around and around and around the moon. And they, they literally, they saw them for like an hour. Um, it was the one science result from Apollo 13 because they obviously they didn't get to land on that mission. But it was a surprise. The moon is, because it's colder, it's, uh, it responds to seismic waves somewhat differently than the Earth does. Yeah, so that crust sort of rings and any impacts then then uh, go around the moon rather than through the moon as we had hoped to be able to tease out the size of the mantle and the core. Well, and, and they actually do go through the moon as oh, well. It's not okay. just going around, but it's it's going through. And, and on the Earth, the waves would be attenuated because the, the rocks are warm. If they're hot enough to flow, like we were talking before, they will start to damp the the amplitude of the seismic waves down over time but on the moon it doesn't do that so much and so the waves just kept going and going and going it's like the energizer bunny wow that's fantastic well what do you think was the most surprising results from the grail data you know seismology is great at determining depths but it was it was near the limits of what it could do 
in terms of seeing the core of the moon. And so, so the grail data let us confirm in a completely independent way the structure of the deep part of the moon. One of the real surprises is that we confirm that the moon has a liquid outer core. That means the moon has not cooled down as much as we might have thought. Small bodies cool off more quickly than, than large bodies. If we're going to keep the cooking analogy going, um, uh, hamburgers cook quick, pot roast takes longer, and Thanksgiving turkeys take much longer. Big things take a long time to get energy in them. They take longer to cool off as well. So the moon is much smaller than the Earth. We expected it to cool off, and yet the deep part of the moon, there is still a liquid core, probably related to having some sulfur that acts like an antifreeze in it. The other really um, fun part of GRAIL was that we could see the structure of some of these large impact basins. Um, we can see the thickness of the melt sheet that was created from these, in, from these impacts, which tells us something about the size. We can see the faults that are created by the impact. So we're learning something about the impact process. And there are impact basins on the moon that uh, are so old and so degraded that you can hardly see them in topography now, but they still have the gravity signature. And so Grail was able to show that there are about twice as many of these large impacts as we actually knew about from the topography. So we changed the impact history of the moon by a factor of two. And, and of course, the Earth was being hit by the same amount of things. So we're learning also about the Earth by doing this. What have we learned about the moon that helps us understand these other rocky bodies? You've started talking about uh, the fact that uh, they all have cores and maybe even since the moon has a liquid outer core, perhaps things like Mars or Mercury or even Venus still do. The, the two things that the moon has told us about, I think, the most, one is the role of impacts, which I touched on a few moments ago, um, that, that large impacts really sculpted the early solar system in, in a way that uh, we were starting to understand the role of impacts before Apollo with work by people like Gene Shoemaker on the Earth. But, but the Apollo data really told us the importance of large impacts shaping the surfaces of all of the planets. But the other part is the, uh, and this was a complete surprise until we got the Apollo samples, was uh, the extent to which early planets were partially or probably fully molten. Uh, that was a surprise. When we went to the moon, um, leading scientists like Harold Urey thought that the moon formed cold and that we would see what the early solar system was like because the moon had not changed since it formed. And that turned out not to be true. What we understand now is that, uh, that the moon and probably the earth and Mars and Venus all went through this magma ocean phase uh, that that we don't see the evidence for on the Earth because so many other things have overprinted it. But on the Moon, we still see it. And yet we know that the Earth must have gone through that. So we see a part of Earth's history um, recorded in the Moon that we can, can no longer see on the Earth. So if you were to put a, a set of scientific hardware back on the Moon, what would it be and why? I really hope that sometime as we're starting to try and go back to the Moon, both with uh, robotic spacecraft and, and eventually with... Uh, with uh, human crew that we will go to a larger range of places. Um, and I know that there's there's real interest in going to the South Pole, but I hope we will go to other places. Um, and, and I would like to see a network of seismometers and heat flow probes 
globally distributed around the moon because what we know from the Apollo data is really focused on the central part of the near side. And a, and a globally distributed set of seismic stations could tell us so much more about the deep structure of the moon, tell us about the core and the magnetic fields and things like that. But also um, there, there are signatures left behind there of this magma ocean phase that we can only start to glimpse in the current data. Well, you know, I think that era is coming up. You know, NASA's Artemis program is planning to go forward to the moon and put the first woman and the next man on the surface by 2024. It's going to be an exciting time. You know, as we begin to execute the Artemis program, uh, one of the elements, the gateway, uh, will allow us to, uh, because it orbits the moon in such a unique way, allow us to put instruments on the far side of the moon. And, and then that then blows open, I think, a whole new area of scientific research. So we're all really looking forward to that. I am too. Well, Walter, you know, I always ask my guests to tell us how they became the scientists they are today. What happened in their career that really accelerated them forward, perhaps even changed their direction? What was your gravity assist? So I, I would say my gravity assist, Jim, actually was the Apollo 11 landing. I was seven years old. Um, I was captivated listening to that and the thought that people could explore other worlds, I wanted to be one of those people. Um, and uh, I, I discovered as I went through um, uh, junior high and high school that I was very good at math and science. Um, and so I put that thought together and I thought, well, and, and I'm, I'm in high school when NASA announced the first set of mission specialists for the space shuttle. And I thought, okay, I can be one of those. I was pretty clear I wasn't going to be a pilot. And it turned out, well, I turned out to be too tall to be an astronaut at all. But I realized that by I could do the next best thing. Um, if I can't actually go to the moon, I can at least actually study um, study planetary science and and learn about not just about the Earth but about our whole solar system. And and so I, I attribute that really to to Apollo 11 and what Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin did in 50 years ago. Well, thanks so much for joining me here on Gravity Assist. You've really allowed us to peer inside the moon and and get a deeper look. Thank you for having me, Jim. My pleasure. Well, join me next time as we continue our exploration of the moon. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.